Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Well, this time of year, as we are joined together, a lot of times we uh, have a tendency to focus on there being, I guess you would call it a Christmas time message. But for the next couple weeks, as we have been, we're going to study out of Matthew chapter 5, and uh, really chapter 6 is where we're at, Matthew chapter 6. We're going to study out of Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to look at uh, some of these phrases that the Lord has given us as, if you will, a model prayer. Uh, last week, and really, really, as you focus on these, it's not just really, sometimes the thought is the Lord's prayer. Uh, but these are not the words that you're going to record that the Lord prayed. Rather, I think you could perhaps get a better thought of it as being the disciples' prayer. Uh, not that we should pray it or have a need to pray it as a repetitious thing. I would hearken back to previous verses where he admonishes us not to pray as the heathens do. Um, there's no command in the book of Acts or in the pastoral epistles that this should be used by the assembly or, if you will, individuals. But rather, as believers, when we look into these passages, we begin to study them. We find great guidance and truths for praying. And particularly they come as we examine this prayer. Now last week when we looked in Matthew chapter 6, we focused really on this theme in verse number 9. Our Father which art in heaven. And uh, to this we looked at the position where God is. A lot of times folks have the idea is God is within us in a general sense. And by the fact that God is omniscient and He's omnipresent, etc., there has an element of truth to that. But God the Father is in heaven. And it is to God the Father that we direct our prayers. I was this week considering a little bit of this very topic, and my mind went to Colossians chapter 1. And in Colossians chapter 1, Paul, the apostle, writing by inspiration, I'll turn here quickly, uh, he's writing, uh, he hears of a difficulty that's in this group of believers. He does not know them personally. He did not plant the church at Colossae. Uh, there's no mention with exception of Epaphras that he had ever met them whatsoever. But hearing upon their needs, uh, he begins to pray for them. And I, I'll just read this to you. It's uh, in Colossians chapter number 1. And note, if, if you will, if you're there, you look in verse 9. If not, he says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, desiring that you might be filled uh, with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. In verse number 12, he says, giving thanks unto the Father. And so perhaps sometimes as we get to pray, we wonder, well, who are we praying for, praying to specifically? Well, in the Scripture, you're not praying to the Holy Ghost. You're not even praying to Jesus Christ. Theologically, you're praying to God the Father, which art in heaven. What allows us to pray is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5 talks about we are working through Him. We have access by Him into the heavenlies. And what ought to motivate us to pray is the work and labor of the Holy Spirit of God within us. And Romans 8 speaks on this guard. And then we finished up last week really with this, uh, what the fatherhood of God to His children really means. Now, if you're not a child of God this morning, then this will not bring you much comfort. But as one that has put their faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you've received the gift of salvation. You have proclaimed Him as your Savior, uh, etc. When you get to this point, there is a number of things wherewith we should draw grand focus and grand comfort from. 
And I left you with a series of them last week. For instance, one of them was, there's no need of fear. Because I see him as my father, which is in heaven. Because that's who he is. He cares for me. By virtue of his care for me, there's no uncertainty that needs to grip my soul. No fear needs to assuade me. Uh, There's no need to be self-focused. Rather, I am addressing the Father in heaven. There's no need for doubt. There's no need for uh, disobedience. There's no need for a disconnect for he loves us and has promised to provide for me. And, and I don't have to worry about him deciding that he's no longer interested in me. He is my father, which art in heaven. But this morning, I want to take our time that we have. And our intention this morning is to focus on the second phrase. Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. When we come to this particular passage, I think really getting into it, I want you to focus on something here. Notice if you will, verse number 9 and 10. Hallowed be thy name, verse 10, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. As you go down through this model prayer, if you were able to divide it, you would come out with six or seven different petitions that the Lord in leaving this model prayer for his disciples is going to make. And what we find unique Uh, those that would hold a six and those that would hold a seven, it all comes to what they do with the conjunction in verse number 13 where he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Depending on what you want to do with that conjunction, whether that's two independent thoughts or a combination of two thoughts that brings one overarching thing would determine whether you're a six petition or a seven petition. I don't know if that's really a thing or not, but that's how it's broken down. What is interesting to note is this week, the first petition to be made in prayer hallowed be thy name. The next petition, thy kingdom come. And the final part of this first half, thy will be done. These three petitions are distinguished by the focus of thy. That is to focus on the glory of the Father. We might even call it the doctrine of adoration. You could speak of it as veneration. You could speak of it as reverence. Ultimately, it's worship. Now, I would draw in stark refrain of this as I consider. Oftentimes in our prayer, is it not that our focus is usually me, mine, and ours? Is it not so often what drives us to prayer is, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you to intervene. And truly it is to be said, we can cast, First Peter chapter 5, all our cares upon him, for he careth for us. But I would have you note that when the Lord is leaving the model, there in verse number 8 and 9, when he says, therefore when you pray, pray in this manner, the focus seems to be at the very point of prayer. Thy name, thy kingdom, thy will. No, I think sometimes there's a grand disconnect in our prayers because we've failed to incorporate a level of worship, veneration, adoration in the God to whom we are praying with. Now the pagan that would believe in his polytheistic godhood, that would have as many gods to pray in, he can only hope that his God can intervene. Yet the God in which the believer worships is the God that made the heaven and the earth. It is the God that spake into existence all things that were. It is the God that has seen you as you are. 
Psalmist says in the 139th Psalm, he saw me being yet unformed. He knew me in my mother's womb and identifying wholly that I am foolish and that I am an enemy of God, yet his kindness and love has bought for me salvation through my faith in him. The first part of my prayer meditation ought to be of him. Thy name, thy kingdom, thy will. As we'll look this morning, hallowed be thy name is a reference to the sanctification of his name. His name, in fact, means something. His kingdom come, there is a hope for every child of God to one day abide in that eternal kingdom of which there shall be no end. Thy will be done. I think really that's the heart sentiment. Nothing will ever be accomplished through prayer if it is not according to to his will. Three petitions on thy. Let's look again here at this one, hallowed be thy name. When we speak of hallowed be thy name, we must note that this is a position which is a desire and an expectation to embrace God. It is the first of these three thy petitions. It draws the saint of God who believing into full embrace of God's purpose and his plan. It is this God that is always holy and should be hallowed, holy, made, if you will, in us. God is not a God of the self-seeking prayer. God has priority. Therefore, worship should coincide together with prayer, making prayer dependent upon worship. Failure to pray is in fact a failure to worship, and failure to worship always results in a failure to prayer. This word hallowed, it has at its root to be separate, to be made holy. And when you come to verse number 9 and he speaks of his name, this is a unique thing. It speaks not only of his name, and there are many names of God given in scriptures, but it moves beyond that and it references all that he is. His power, his character, his plan, his will. You might think in scriptures of a number of times in which you'll find a reference of his name. For instance, I would remind you of Exodus chapter 20. The scripture says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Just a few chapters earlier, Moses is going into Egypt, you'll remember, and there at the burning bush, wanting to know by whose authority, whose name he should go before Pharaoh is. You remember what the Lord told him? I am that I am has sent you. He identified himself through his name. In Isaiah 42 and verse 8, the scripture records, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to the graven images. Seeking on this thought, it takes us to Acts chapter 4. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jeremiah the prophet writing to the children of Judah wrote in the 16th chapter, Therefore behold, I will once cause them to know. I will cause them to know my name, or rather mine hand, and my might, that they shall know that my name is the Lord. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, speaking of a token of his coming, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. And behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel. If you were to take the opportunity this morning 
You could go through all of the Old Testament scriptures and you could find various sundry names that God ascribes to himself and each of them show a different facet of his character. For instance, you could read of his name that in the scripture is translated God. You could look in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth. The name God is the name Elion. El Elion. And it has the idea of God the creator, the possessor of heaven and earth. Some chapters later in Genesis, you become acquainted with one by the name of Abraham. And Abraham, it is revealed God's name is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord which provideth. To David, it could be one of Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. There is in the scripture Jehovah Sitkanu, the Lord our righteousness. You might think of the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. Jehovah Ra, the Lord my shepherd. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 10 reminds us this, that the name of our Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. You see, in the name of God, it is just not a titular figure. It is just not a reference point. To understand the name of God is indicative of all of His ability, His power, His might, His will. It's comprehensive of everything He is and everything He ought to be to you and I. In Isaiah chapter 48, Isaiah in verse number 9, through inspiration writes, For my name's sake... You know, think about how many times that's the phrase used in the psalmist. He speaks in the 23rd Psalm and he talks about that he is led as a shepherd for his namesake. The same is found twice in the 25th Psalm. It's also found, I believe, in the 34th Psalm, his namesake. Why? Because his name is a reference not just of a title. His name is referenced just not as an identity. It is comprehensive to who he is. It's everything. Therefore, listen, I am saved because of His name's sake. If God is a God that randomly changes His expression and promises to men, if He's whimsical, then I have not the salvation that God has provided. For truly, was it James that said, God is not a variable God? He's a God above who is unchanging. The writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That eternal God gives you and I pause and hope in the most dire of circumstances. If He is changed, if His hand can no longer save as it once used to be, then He will cease to be God, for He is changed. He is Elohim. He is the great God. Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah refer to him as the God of heaven. That's a marvelous sentiment to behold. For the Persians and the Babylonians that coincided with David and Ezra and Nehemiah were polytheistic. They'd name anything to God, any pretty trinket, any dirty pool of water. It's interesting how the pagans of Egypt and the pagans of Babylon all were engaged in the worship of the sun and of the water in whom there was no control at all, in whom they could petition and there was no return on that petition. But Daniel, the prophet of God, would pray in the ninth chapter. And it was Daniel's God that delivered him out of the den of lion. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was Daniel's God and their God that delivered them out of the fiery furnace. Over and over, that is the case. Their hope and promise was in the very name of God that extends beyond his title of reference and to the very character that he was. For my name's sake, he says in Isaiah. Listen to this. Will I defer mine anger? That's a powerful sentiment, isn't it? The scripture tells us that God is angry with the wicked every day. The God tells us in the scripture that God is a just God. Place a juxtaposition. Place a formula on that. How is he also a just God but a loving God? How is he a merciful God? Yet at times being a just God means that he has to exact judgment. He said, I will defer mine anger. And for my praise will I refrain for thee that I cut thee not off. Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction for mine own sake. David in the 143rd Psalm, the psalmist, rather in verse 11, Quicken me, O Lord, for thy name's sake. For thy righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. And again, I reference those passages in the 23rd Psalm, and the 25th Psalm, and later in the 30s, for my name's sake. When you think of hallowed be thy name, it is not simply that his name be set apart, just like your name might be set apart. Uh, for instance, it always tickles me, these little children, you know, and you'll hear one of them cry, Daddy! And then every dad that has a little child. I know my child's voice, but it's just a response that if your child was to be in here, cry, Daddy, I would immediately look. I don't know why. That's not what he's talking about here. If you were to call my given name, Brandon. I don't know if there's any other Brandons here, but I'm one. I'd have a tendency to look. That's true in the experience of life. If you were in a store and somebody was to scream your name, even if they're not talking to you, you might have the response to look. It's not what the name of God is exclusive in. He's talking about his ability, power, magnitude, promise, and will. So then in verse number 9, we come to an interesting point. What does it mean to hallow the name of God? Well, if hallow means holy, separate, set apart... The opposite of that would be blasphemy. So how could someone blaspheme the name of the Lord? For the sake of our time, we're talking about not hallow it. I think of a number of things through scriptures by which one could fail to hallow or make holy the name and person of the Almighty God. Now I've already read one in Exodus chapter 20. But I'll give you the reading that is found in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 12. He says, And ye shall not swear by my name falsely, neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God. I am the Lord. You know, we live in a society today, and I suppose always been this way, where God's name is so readily flippantly used. And it, it's used in happy times 
you know, you, you like I think of uh, these uh, remodeling shows, you know, you watch them and they go in and they repaint somebody's house and they redecorate it. And uh, I especially am partial to the ones where they get to leave and go have dinner. And when they come back, it's all done. I'm more personally partial to that than the ones where you have to help do it and then get all your friends to help do it. But, you know, where you walk in and inevitably the door opens and here's that person and they're all blindfolded and trusting the friends and they're easing their way open. And now look, what's the first word out of their mouth? It's almost like it's scripted. (gasps) Oh, my. It's so flippant. Is that hallowing his name? I, I would make the, I would have you to consider that that would be the opposite. It's so common. Sometimes in anger. GD! Is that hallowing his name? Society today. Now, I do not expect society to behave like Christians. But for a child of God, in the context of prayer, hallowing his name ought to be a preeminent responsibility that we prioritize. His name means something. My eternal hope is predicated in the name Jesus. My eternal hope is predicated in the name Emmanuel, God with us. And there's a lot of names that aren't worth anything. There's a lot of names that you'll forget in life. But there better be one name that your soul adheres to with great magnitude. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sin. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Hallowed be thy name. What does it mean? Well... We can blaspheme the name by taking it in vain. Let me give you another way the name of the Lord is blasphemed. Turn turn over, if you will, to the pastoral epistles. And and I want you to draw your eyes to chapter 6. Chapter 6. Notice, if you will, let as many, I'm in verse 1, let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor. What's that last phrase say? That the name of God. Really? Send a text. The name of God and his doctrine be not... This is more than just saying his name in vain. I can fail to hallow God's name, yes, by taking his name in vain, but I as a child of God can also fail to hallow his name by living in contrast in behavior opposed to his name. Since God's name is hallowed, his disciples ought to as well. What did Peter write in 1 Peter chapter 1? Be ye holy. Why? For I am holy. 
In 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. I would submit to you that one could blaspheme the name of God by their behavior in this life. When I am particularly chapter 6 and verse 1, there's other expressions in chapter 5 that we could go to for time's sake. But the very fact that any time I fail as a child of God who named the name of Christ, that is a colloquialism in the Bible for one that is saved, I named the name of Christ and yet the decorum and life I live is contrasting to the world, I've blasphemed the word of God. If I'm going to live in open morality, I've blasphemed the name of God. If I've lived in open rebellion, and I say open because then others can see it. That's the only distinction. It doesn't make it more right or wrong. I could say I'm living in morality, but people can live in morality in secret today, and others cannot see that blasphemy. If I'm walking rebelliously, I'm blaspheming the name of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, if I'm not taking care of my family, the scripture says I'm worse than an infidel. All of that is in contrast to the name of God. Think for a moment of that one in 1 Timothy chapter 5. I'll come back. He talks about he that careth not for his own. So the household of faith is worse than an infidel. Think about this for a moment. In prayer, what is the analogy that God gives under provision? A good father giveth good gifts unto his children. How much greater is thy father which is in... And do you see why it's a blasphemy against God when I've sat there as a father and say, well, I'm not going to take care of my children? Now, we could have an honest discussion about what it means to take care of your family. As a child, I could readily agree that that meant a car, a brand new car when I was 16. And updates every year, you know. I don't think that's the context of Scripture. But the fact is, as a good father, listen, I'm blaspheming the name of God when I have failed to be the father I ought to be. In provision, in discipline, in so many eras of life. Let me give you another one in, in keeping with that. You're in 1 Timothy. Turn over to chapter 1 of Titus. Just a few pages over. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. So how do I fail to hallow the name of God? That's what we're talking about. Well, by taking his name irreverently. Making it dismissive, casual. Just flip it with it. Number two, by living a life that is contrary to his will. And I use the analogy here. We read the passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Also, I believe in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He talks about caring for your children. When I, as a child of God, behave counter to how God wants me to have, I am blaspheming his name. Now you're in Titus chapter 1. Look, if you will. Notice, if you will, in verse number 9, holding fast, speaking to the, in context to the preacher, holding fast the word, the faithful word, as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine <clears throat> both to exhort and convince the gainsayer. For there are many unrulers and vain talkers and deceiver, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, 
teaching things they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. Verse number 13, the witness is true, wherefore rebuke them sharply they may be sound in the faith. I'll give you another way God is blasphemed. And this wasn't just to the Cretans. He's blasphemed by the promotion of false doctrine in his name. That's the context of this. There were people on this Isle of Crete that Titus is going to be sent to. And listen, they were preaching of, of things and teaching of things that were contradictory to what God said. That's why going up back in the previous verses, Titus was to go and set things, verse number 5, in order. If you look into chapter 2 and verse 1, but speak thou the things that become sound doctrine. He's going to conclude that later in the chapter again. Sound doctrine is the preeminence. The distinction between sound doctrine and false doctrine is what it has to do with Jesus Christ. Let me give you one more passage on this very theme. And that's on in First uh, John chapter 4. He said, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. He continues in chapter 4, and speaking of the things of God, and speaking of the essence of truth and error, he said um, in verse number 3, And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus the Christ is come in flesh is not of God. Time will not permit us, but we could look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, and he references this very false teaching as the doctrines of devils. I would submit to you another way in which God is blasphemed today is when unbiblical truths are embraced. And many times, many times that comes from church folks. You know, years ago, I read this bumper sticker, and you can still see them. And I do read bumper stickers. I've, I've almost gotten into car accidents reading bumper stickers. <clears throat> somebody had a designer, even if I disagree with it, somebody had a designer's eye. And it just resonates with me. My favorite one to beat on is coexist. That is the dumbest. Anyway, <clears throat> whatever. It's historically ignorant. Anyway, where was I at? Bumper stickers. My God is too big to fit in a box. That sounds good, doesn't it? Like coexist. The reality is your God is revealed in a box. You and I have no right to assume anything about God that he hasn't revealed in this book. People get weird ideas about what God wants or who God is or what God's going to do. You know the expression, I've mentioned this before, I really believe is not the same thing as God said. One has to be very cautious. Folks get these ideas about God and beliefs. And, you know, I understand that sometimes God places an impression upon your heart. I'm not necessarily talking about those. But this word of God is your sanctity and it's your security. And I can contrive some wonderful things about God that, frankly, aren't biblical. Sometimes folks have the idea that just because God died for all the world, that all the world is saved. Or that somehow there's no sin and death that's ever going to transmit to someone living forever in a lake of fire. You know what that is? That's blasphemy against the hallowed name. 
Why? Because it's against God's Word. And God has placed His Word on the standard of who He is. You and I should not be nearly concerned with what someone believes as to whether or not they have accepted the Word of God. Because that's what God's going to judge us by. He did not say your beliefs were settled in heaven, but He did say His Word is settled in heaven. A lot of blasphemy today that occurs by flippantly taking His name, by living in contradiction to His Word, but also by embracing teaching that is contrary to His Word. While we're on this topic, let me just give you one more. I don't think that this happens in the context of Scripture in which it did. But in Mark chapter 13, I believe it is, and Matthew chapter 12, you have this thing of the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. You familiar with that? What happened in context is, is the Lord is, is laboring and He is working. There's the casting out of demonic spirits. And they accused him that he did it by the power of Beelzebub. It's in that passage in Matthew chapter 12. He said, how, if a house be divided, how can it stand? And he warns them this. He said, blasphemy against the Son to be forgiven. But blasphemy against the Holy Ghost is not forgiven in this life nor in the life that is to come. Now, I submit to you in a proper context, Jesus Christ not, no longer walking upon terra firma. One cannot commit the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in the same way in which it was committed with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12. And again, that's because he's physically not walking on earth. You're not witnessing his physical miracles being done. Yet by practical application to reject his gift. That's the context of the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. To know that the convicting power of the Spirit of God is going to come upon an individual... And for that individual to see themselves short of the glory of God and to sit there and say, I'm going to refuse. I'm going to attribute the salvation to my own self and not to God. I don't need God and I don't need His truth. There'll be an eternal judgment for that. To the believer we say, hallowed be His name. I marvel today at how much very little reverence there is for the name of Christ within and without the context of believers. I have here in my notes, there was a challenge in end of December of 2006. It's called the Blasphemy Challenge. You familiar with this? It sounds like one of these TikTok things. But it was headed up by people like Christopher Hitchens, who was an avowed atheist. The irony with Christopher Hitchens, he's passed away now, but he's a highly intelligent man. English. Very articulate. And I always found something interesting about Christopher Hitchens. I mean, the ability with words and expressions and, and, and such and so forth, but his, believer, his brother, his biological brother, is a Bible-believing Christian. There's a level of humor in that. It might not strike you, but it does me. How can two men come from the same woman, have close proximity DNA, their blood relatives, and one put his hope in Jesus Christ and the other one deny and aggressively attack the existence of Jesus Christ. That's interesting to me. But it's put out and uh, they challenged in this blasphemy challenge the first 1,001 users that would submit videos to YouTube or video or internet hosts in which they recorded themselves blaspheming or denying the existence of the Holy Spirit or God Himself 
they would receive this DVD. The God who wasn't there. An atheist such as Christopher Hitchens and Penn Jillette, the magician, participated in this project. One day, there's going to be a reckoning. The Lord said, Hallowed be thy name. So how then can a Christian, a believer, who is seeking to model their prayer life after this model that the Lord gave his disciples, how then can I in my prayer and in my life hallow the very name of God? Let me just give you three additional thoughts. Think I can hallow the name of God as a believer when I acknowledge his existence. Hebrews tells us, He that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That rewarder, that word there, it has the idea of a paymaster. Now, some of you collect paychecks. I actually believe that direct deposit, there's a lot of good about direct deposit. I'm not preaching against it, but I used to really enjoy the paymaster. When I worked, I, I wouldn't get a direct deposit. And uh, what would happen is on Friday on the given day, the checks would come and they, they had a little old container that would come. And usually it was an armed escort that was present. They'd bring them in, they'd set them in. And you knew at a certain time, and if it was going to be late, they'd get word around to pass the word, hey, we're going to be running late. And boy, then you could go up there and they'd look at you and say, oh, my name's Starnes. It's two S's, one at the beginning and the end. And sign here and then they would document stuff and they'd give it to you and it was like exciting to open it and then you saw how much was withheld and it was not exciting anymore. Paymaster. Let me ask you a question. How was your pay determined? Wasn't arbitrary, was it? They didn't pay me because they thought I was pretty. They didn't pay me when I wasn't there. Vacation aside, they paid me because I had a promise to them to do a certain amount of work. And they had put a value on my hour and time. And at the concluding period of pay, whatever that pay period was, I'd go up there and guess what? They had a reward for me. That's what the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, that hall of faith expresses. He must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek them. You know, I hollow the name of God when I acknowledge his existence, and when I acknowledge the existence of God, I must in my heart decide to diligently pursue him. One writer put it this way, it's the law within us and the starry heavens above that drive us to God to diligently seek him. I hallow the name of God when I acknowledge His existence in my life. I hallow the name of God when I accept His eternal truth. Falsities about God are prevalent. Nothing should be assumed, as I said a moment ago, about God that is not presented in the text of Scripture. Man often brings into his concept ideas of God that have no place. But the scripture says in John 17, Thy word is truth. So when I look at the God of heaven in prayer and I accept 
His existence and I accept His eternal truth. I am hallowing the name of God. My friend, there's all manner of truth in the Scripture to which I need to acquaint myself with. When He said He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him, He'll reward my faith. He'll go, my prayer ought to be in faith. When He has made promises to me that He would never leave me nor forsake me, I ought to accept that truth and, and dwell in that presence. When He says one day He's coming again, I can accept that truth. That's hallowing the name of the Almighty God. I hallow the name of God when I align with the example. If you're writing or taking notes behind example, you just put a parenthesis and you put this word W-I-L-L, His will. You know, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But oh, that the child of God in adoration and worship would start his prayer, Thy will be done. Think how transformative that is. Ah, oh, too often I have failed to align my prayers with the example that he has left. Too often my prayers are, God, do this for it is my will. It is my will. And oh, there are too many things about my will that conflict with the will of scriptures. Yet God is commanded over and again. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, that's God's will. Ephesians chapter 5 says, Proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, having no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them, for it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is the light. Wherefore, he saith, Awake thou that sleepeth, arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. No wonder he admonished later, walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time for the days are evil. Wherefore be ye not unwise but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Let me just take all of that that I just read and put it in one verse for you. It would be Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. Let your light so shine before me that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father which is in heaven. I hallow the name of God when I align with His example. I think that's one of the greatest struggles that Christians are going to have in life is yielding their members to righteousness. I find personally it is so easy, so easy for me to reflect on that which is innate. It's so easy to do the wrong thing. It's so easy to be dismissive of the person and work of God. It's so easy to fail in my diligence towards God. It's so easy to sleep instead of watching and praying. It's so easy to not focus on the studies of scriptures. It's so easy to live according to my flesh as opposed to the Spirit of God. Have you ever noticed it's always difficult to please God? I mean, the best night sleeps I ever get are Saturday night. Why? Why is it a struggle to prioritize God in my life? Why is it? 
because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is diabolically weak. Hallowed be his name. In closing, I'll leave you with one more passage. The 31st Psalm. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I want to model your prayer in a way that pleases God. You've got to address the right person. My Father, which art in heaven, in the right manner, hallowed be thy name. Let's stand with thee. Father, Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.